0: This episode is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they have created a limited edition Everyday Hero shirt. There are only 2,000 of them available. And 100% of the proceeds are going to go to charity. And on top of that, for every purchase, they're going to donate an N95 mask to first responders in New York City, which is certainly one of the hardest hit areas in America during this crisis. And on top of that, as always, they still are offering the 15% discount to all listeners of Behind the Shield using the code SHIELD15, shield Fifteen. S H I E L D S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And I just want to go over some of the products that I featured in the past that I think are incredible. So you have the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great, comfortable alternative to the heavy, cumbersome duty boot. You have the uniforms, some of which I wore over a decade ago in Anaheim Fire, which I think are some of the most comfortable and come in a variety of fits to make sure they actually do fit the responder. The AMP backpack, which I've used from hiking to loading with plates on a cruise ship to exercise in, to traveling across the world when I see family and do interviews. And then more recently, the shorts and the jeans are incredibly comfortable. I've been using them as well and some of the flashlights. So there are so many things that will add value to your work life and your home life in their catalog of products. So just to reiterate again, go to 511 Tactical, that's 511 dot com. use the code SHIELD15, save 15% and make a difference in your community. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing and this is episode 317 and I am so excited to bring to you my next guest, Johan Hari. Now, Johan is the author of Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections, and if you have read either of those books, you will know that he literally has spanned planet Earth, finding some of the greatest people in the mental health arena and in the addiction arena, not only from a clinical side, but from the people down on the streets, the addicts and people who have found other ways of overcoming this epidemic that we have and innovating in certain countries. So I cannot stress highly enough how much you need to listen to this episode. The men and women on the streets, the first responders, the medical personnel, we see the side effects of mental illness. And that manifests many times in addiction. So this needs to be heard by all of us and everyone else, all the citizens of all the countries around the world, because there are nations that are doing it incredibly well and having amazing success. And there are nations that are doing incredibly poorly, causing a huge amount of violence and death and magnifying the problem. Before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings truly do make us more visible to people looking for a project like this. And as I've mentioned, this is a free library of information. People like Johan truly have answers that will save lives around planet Earth. And all I ask you, the audience, to do is just simply share these episodes. So with that being said... Introduced to you, Johan Hari. Enjoy. Johan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're writing the book at the moment. I know you're interviewing, you know, with other people as well. But uh, this is a conversation I've wanted to have for, I want to say, since the podcast started, like three plus years ago. So, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time at eight o'clock at night in England to come on the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I, I I'm actually basically nocturnal, so this is the middle of the day for me, so that time is no problem. Also, I feel like um, you are someone with a similar problem to me, which is you're a British person in the United States. So I'm in the U.S. about half the year. And um, I can feel your accent sliding around in comical ways. I've (laughs) Empathise with that. A similar thing has happened to me. So uh, I once went into a diner in a place called Cactus, Arizona, uh, when I was first spending a load of time in the U.S., and I remember um, it was actually, an, I think it was an IHOP actually. And I said to the woman like, hi, can I have some pancakes? And she looked at me and she said, what, what? And I said, can I, can I have some pancakes? She went, what? And I said, C- can I have some pancakes? She going, what are you saying? And this went on for like three minutes. And then she looked at me very seriously and she said, do you speak English? And I was like, why people fucking invented it, right? And, she, uh, and then I said, can i have some pancakes and she was like why didn't you just say that at the start <laughs> so that was when i realized that i had to adjust my voice but now <laughs> it happens like unconsciously it's like it's yeah so anyway i, I empathize with you
0: yeah it's so funny because my, if my wife was listening now she would be laughing her ass off the number of times i've gone to a drive through and again i'm i'm in america so i don't get you know um angry about it but you know i'll say oh can i have a yeah, whatever. French fries and a burger, please. And and I, I'm, I'm sorry, what? And so I'm like, can I get some French fries and a burger? And they're like, okay. And, I,
1: <laughs> and I then. Never- so I'm very happy for my accent to be polluted <laughs> by uh, by Americanism. I'm delighted.
0: So now the game is to like do different accents, whether it's you know a camp one from New York or a Southern <laughs> one. So I kinda, I get to play with them now. So the tables well, turn.
1: Any American accent I do it doesn't matter who I'm who I'm trying to do, whether it's Trump or Oprah or anyone in between, always turns into Cartman in South Park. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my god. Stop doing this! Respect my authority! So basically, all my American accents converge on Cartman, which is an unfortunate voice to have.
0: So. <laughs> you always <laughs> end up with chicken pot pie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a tragedy. All right, well, then, so you mentioned about splitting your time. Where in America is your other um, place of. Uh, God, I kind of spit my words out now. Where, where's your base in the States?
1: So it totally varies. At the moment it's Las Vegas because I'm writing a book about uh, Vegas and something, I'm not meant to talk about it yet, but something that's been happening in Vegas and um, <laughs> not something good. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm spending a huge amount of time in Vegas and I will be over the next couple of years, but uh, it's a place that I absolutely love. I know um, it polarizes people uh, and a lot of people are kind of snooty about Vegas, but uh I absolutely love it, and uh, it's a very complex and weird and, and fascinating place um, and quite a disturbing place in some ways. So, yeah, that's that's my... Have you been to Vegas?
0: You know what? I haven't yet, and it's somewhere I want to go. I lived in California, Southern California, for a few years, and that was you know, not too far a drive, but I do want to get out there. So maybe, I'm being totally presumptive now, but when you're back out there next, maybe we can do a, a second one face-to-face.
1: I really recommend it because... The, and this is a very pretentious thing, reason to recommend Vegas. There's a million reasons. But the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard said that Vegas was the most purely American place. And I think there's some there's some truth in that. Uh, but, I mean, in some ways, I think Vegas is a vision of where the world is headed for good and bad. So, yeah, I definitely come. It's, it's amazing and uh, uh, it's never boring.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, so we'll do that. And I'll, I'll, I'll align going to Vegas as a trip and then maybe a second interview for us as well. Excellent. Okay. Well, then the other half. So, wh- so where is your base in England now?
1: Oh, I'm from London. So, um, I've, I've um, yeah, I was I was born in in uh, Glasgow because my mother's Scottish, um, but they moved here when I was a baby. My my parents had, m- had met here in London. They um, they lived next door to each other, and my dad's an immigrant. My dad's from Switzerland, a tiny little village in the Swiss mountains. And him and my mother lived um, very close to each other, but they didn't speak the same language. And um, they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I tried to explain is not a concept that makes sense. <laughs> them is in a one night stand. And um, she got pregnant and they thought they had to get married. Um, and then unfortunately, he learned English. And she often says, he seemed so fucking nice when I couldn't understand what he was saying. Um, <laughs> I think they learn the same language, although they are still together, intermittently. that it's um, They've now been together for 50 years, miraculously. She said to me once, um, when I met him, he looked like Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. I didn't realise I'd end up with fucking Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Very unfortunate. But anyway, no, so anyway, it was a long way of saying, uh, I, was, uh, I grew up in a place called Edgware, which is the end of the northern line in a kind of suburb of London. And, um, uh, now I, I live in a different bit of North London, a kind of <laughs> swankier bit of North London, but um, but yeah, that's that's where this is where I'm from, and I love I love London.
0: Yeah, yeah. I went to uh, university of North London, and I worked on Hampstead Heath as a lifeguard for a while on the ponds there.
1: Oh wow, amazing! I lived in Hampstead for a couple of years. Yeah, it was it was weird living in Hampstead because I went from I lived on Brick Lane, which uh, for people who don't know London is this really bustling, intense immigrant part of. of of, of East London Uh, and when I moved there it was a kind of regarded as a bit of a shithole and then it really rapidly gentrified. Uh, So I lived there for 10 years in the middle of this kind of bustling chaos and uh, I loved it and then almost exactly on my 30th birthday I started finding noise irritating until then I was like hey this is great it's always going people never stop and then I was like shut the fuck up everyone I've got things to do um, but they didn't shut the fuck up and therefore I moved to Hampstead which is a kind of fancy part of London and um, i would never lived anywhere like that before because my family weren't, didn't have money or anything and um, it was really weird because Hampstead it was it was like moving into a very beautiful old people's home because you, you don't ever actually see anyone right it's really weird like everyone's in their fancy houses but you don't see anyone on the street you don't you know, you don't, it's a very weird and I have that weird sense of, um, uh, you know, that kind of class migration sense you get in Britain where you suddenly like feel slightly out of, although I've always, um, it's weird. Although my parents were both from working class backgrounds, I've always had this weird posh voice that I don't understand. It's even in my like childhood videos. It's really odd. I sound like Stewie from Family Guy. <laughs> but my mother's like, what's going on? What are you talking about? And I'm like, mother, stop being so absurd. But um, the the but Hampstead, yeah, it was it was too empty and weird and desiccated for me, so I I left in
0: the end. Right. So well, speaking of child char- of childhood, so obviously we're going to explore you know mental health and a whole a whole host of areas. Um, you had touched on in, in the book about some trauma. So what what was the 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 lows of your your childhood?
1: I'd rather not go too much into the detail of it because it's I think it's one of those things where um, you can sort of tell your own story but you don't want to tell other people's stories for them. And it's not really a story I can tell in a great deal of detail without disclosing things about other people. But um, what what I can say is we had a lot of addiction in my family um, and a lot of um, craziness, for want of a better word, when I was a kid and as I was growing up. um, I was mostly raised by my, my grandmother, who was an amazing person. Uh, she was kind of Scottish working class woman. She left school when she was thirteen, um, and had an incredible, incredibly hard and incredibly beautiful life. But I, I was very interested in childhood trauma, and I've done a lot of work on it for for both my my books, the one about addiction, chasing the scream, and the one about depression and anxiety, lost connections. And I guess, I mean, I learned so much about childhood trauma, but. One of the people who taught me the most was an amazing man. You should have him on your podcast actually, um, called Dr. Vincent Felitti, who did this incredible research. he He made a, a huge breakthrough in our understanding of childhood trauma, and he did it in a slightly um, unexpected way, actually. So he wasn't looking for evidence about childhood trauma at, at first. What happened is he was dr. Felitti was uh, is based in San Diego in California. And he was approached in the mid-1980s by Kaiser Permanente, one of the big not-for-profit medical providers in California. And they said to him, look, we've got a real problem here. We need your help. Um, Every year, obesity is getting worse. And every year we try giving people diet advice and nutrition advice. And even sometimes we give them personal trainers and nothing is working. Uh, if we give you money, will you just do blue skies research to figure out what the fuck is going on and and how we can put it right? So Dr. Felitti agreed, and he starts doing this research. and He didn't, at first, didn't really know where to start. So he began to work with two hundred severely obese people, people who weighed more than four hundred pounds. So people whose weight was putting them in real and imminent danger, and people who tried many other forms of treatment for obesity, and none of them had had worked. and he starts working with them and, he, and he's thinking, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And one day he has an idea that seems like and in fact is quite stupid. He asked himself, um, what would happen if severely obese people literally just stopped eating? And obviously we gave them like vitamin shots so they didn't get scurvy and we gave them nutritional supplements. So they didn't, their bodies didn't shut down. Would they actually lose weight? right? Would they actually get down to a healthy weight? So with an absolute load of support, obviously, and a lot of medical checks, they started doing this. And incredibly, at first, it worked, it worked, it worked really well. Initially, there was this big, really drastic reduction in, in, um, in weight for lots of people. Um, So I'll give you an example of a woman, I'm going to call her Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, it's not her real name who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 130 pounds, right? It's incredible. People are congratulating Dr. Felitti, you know, Susan's family is saying that he saved her life. And then one day, something happened that no one predicted. Susan cracked. She went to KFC or whatever it was. She started obsessively eating. And before long, she's back at this really dangerous weight. Not quite where she'd been, but a dangerous weight. And Dr. Felitti called her in and he said, Susan, what happened? What happened? And she said, uh, I don't know. And she looked really ashamed. And um, he said to her, well, tell me about the day that you, you you cracked the day you started eating obsessively again. Um, Did anything unusual happen that day? It turned out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan uh, in her entire adult life she'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her. Not in a bad way, not in a predatory way, quite a nice way, but she felt really frightened and she went and started obsessively eating. And that's when Dr. Felitti asked her a question he'd never thought to ask any of the uh, obese people he was working with. He said, "Um, when did you start to put on your weight? And in Susan's case, it was when she was 12. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 12 that didn't happen when you were nine, didn't happen when you were 15, anything in particular that year? And Susan looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started raping me. And um Dr. Felitti started to interview everyone in the programme. And it turned out a staggering, a majority of them had put on their weight in the aftermath of being sexually assaulted or abused. Which is, at first seems really weird, right? Because that's obviously a much higher than the proportion of the general population who... Um, who have been sexually abused, it's not half, obviously, or more. So he's like, well, why would that be? Why would, why would being sexually abused lead to weight gain? And uh, Susan explained it really well to him. She said, overweight is overlooked. And that's what I need to be. Um, th- th- this thing, Dr. Felitti realized this thing that seems so irrational and obviously is bad for you, right, being severely overweight brings with it all sorts of challenges to your health in fact, for these individuals, was performing a positive function, right? It was protecting them from sexual attention, which was something they had very good reason to, to want to protect themselves from. And Dr. Felitti realised that this, this thing that, um, you know, that seems so irrational was, was performing, performing a, a, an important function. But this was like a small study, right? Um, it's only 200 people, it's hard to make big conclusions. So Dr. Felitti went to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and got a shit ton of money to do a much bigger study. So everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente uh, for a whole year in San Diego, the whole city, no matter what you came in for, schizophrenia, um, broken leg, anything in between, was given uh, two questionnaires. And the first questionnaire asked, um, have any did any of these bad, 10 bad things happen to you when you were a child? Things like neglect, abuse, cruelty, that kind of thing. And the second part asked, um, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And at first it was just going to say obesity, but luckily for us at the last minute they added things like depression, suicide attempts, um, all sorts of pro- other problems. And when at first they added up the figures, they thought they'd made a mistake. So they added them up again, and they were really stunning. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to have problems with depression, addiction, and so on. And when you got into the multiple categories, the figures exploded. If you had had six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide, and you were more than four thousand percent more likely to have an injecting drug addiction. I mean, those are just staggering figures, right? You don't, you don't, you don't get figures like that very often in epidemiology. And um, Dr. Robert Ander, who's another one of the scientists who worked on this, said to me, it made him realize that when someone is doing something that seems self-destructive, obesity, addiction, whatever it might be, um we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you. And in, in my case, uh, you know, I, I had experienced some quite, some, some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. And as an adult, I had been quite depressed. And uh, a lot of the time, not all the time. And um, it, until I learned about this science from Dr. Felitti, I didn't, I didn't really see the connection it's not that I was stupid. I didn't, I wouldn't have denied there was a connection, but I didn't really think about it. And, and it's actually, I remember when I went to see Dr. Felitti, he's a lovely, really good, incredibly admirable person, feeling really angry when I spoke to him and afterwards, because I didn't want to think about the, um, connections between these childhood events and, and my trauma. It was, uh, and some of the negative feelings I'd had, uh, I didn't want to think about it. It felt tremendously painful, but I'm, I'm glad I did because of what I learned later, which
0: perhaps we'll get to. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're gonna. I'd love to explore, interweave the two books and, and what you talk about because I think there's so much to to be said. It's interesting with obesity, though. So here I am, originally from England, now moving to the states, and not only that, but becoming a firefighter paramedic. So the last 14 years of my career, we really got to to pull back the curtain on so many fallacies that we're we're told and one of the big things that that i talk about a lot is you know that that for example the pharmaceuticals i'm not even talking about the mental health ones i'm talking about blood pressure and you know type 2 diabetes and all these things that though you take those and then you're going to be better which is complete you know myth you know, we have a huge epidemic and from the other perspective I get is I coach at a local CrossFit gym as well which is, you know, the, the proactive side of it reactive, I'm sticking a tube down someone's throat while my partner's doing CPR and the other side is we're trying with other trainers to, to get people away from that but no matter, I've, I've got members of the gym that have been coming for years training diligently, um, you know curious about changing eating habits but obviously not actually manifesting that and one element that I have to say through all the things that I've been talking about, it really didn't strike a chord as heavily as it should have is the mental health element in the obese. And the two things we talk about in America, for example, is our obesity epidemic and right now our mental health epidemic. And yet no one's really kind of – I say no one. There's some people are, but the majority of us are not putting two and two together and understanding that when people say, well, why didn't they stop eating when they got a little bit heavy, that maybe this addiction – is no different than the opiates or the social media or the gambling or the porn or all these other things that people cling to. But those men and women, food seems to be the coping mechanism. And then you add the other layer, as you were saying, you were, as so many of my guests have had on, you know, abused as a child. You're, (laughs) the fact that you don't want to be attractive to another person after being abused as an innocent child makes perfect sense. It's, it's, tragic, but it makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot in what you just said, that's really important. I mean, I think it's important to stress a few things, obviously, that there are all sorts of medications that are hugely beneficial to people. Obviously, as paramedic, you obviously agree with that. Um, Also, it's worth stressing, this is not the only cause of the obesity crisis in the US. There's lots of I don't think it's actually the biggest, the biggest causes that the catastrophic food supply system, which is a very recent invention. Um, it's why obesity has exploded, Uh, and the fact that we increasingly live in uh, built environments where it's very hard to walk and cycle anywhere. So it's hard to be, we've created a culture where it's hard to eat well, and it's hard to be uh, physically active in healthy ways. And so the childhood trauma element is very real and significant for some people. I don't think it's the biggest um, determinant, although you're absolutely right, if you create a society of people who are constantly, A, tired, physically tired and be stressed, all of us when we are physically tired and stressed out, unless you're very unusual, some people react differently, but most people want to eat more and they want to eat more shitty food when they're tired and stressed out, right? Well, obviously comfort eating is a very real, a real thing. So if you create a society people who are chronically stressed and chronically tired, that in itself will make quite apart from childhood trauma, that, that kind of ongoing grinding, low-level trauma will make people want to eat shittier food. And, and you then got a society where the shittier food is much cheaper, much easier to get. Um, and healthy food is hard to get. Uh, so there's a whole kind of complex going on there. But I think, um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think, but I, but I agree with you, I think it's really important that we think about these things as interconnected.
0: Yeah. And then like you said, you mentioned the word hard. And that's, that's a, a great description is it shouldn't be hard for a child to be able to move around it shouldn't be hard for you know an adult to go to wherever they get their food from and walk away with clean meat clean vegetables you know not processed food but it is you know so the sad thing is you're right that the label discipline goes on healthy eating right now which shows you how broken our system actually is
1: yeah and also that we transfer the way we try and solve these problems is very often to just that, uh, you know, there's this phrase, um, some people who criticize self-help use this really important phrase. Um, they, they talk about cruel optimism. So cruel optimism is where you take a really big problem with big social causes uh, for a lot of people like depression, obesity, anxiety, addiction, and in a very upbeat way, you say, hey, Joey, you can solve this problem for yourself, right? You say, all you need to do is these three things and you're going to get better. And there is a place for individuals to make changes in their lives. I'm strongly in favor of it. i have argued for it in my books. But the reason it's cruel optimism for a lot of people is, to be honest, in a culture like this, they're going to be running up a down escalator, right? The, the, it, it's really, really, really hard. And the biggest thing we need to do is to change the overall culture and society, which is something we can do as citizens. It's happened many times before. We're um, all the beneficiaries of these changes in the past. Um, you need to You need to actually change the direction of the escalator, right? You need to stop it so that instead of it being hard to eat well, hard to spend time with your children, hard to not be depressed, to get your needs met, we need to make it easier to do that um and make a society where that is actually the norm rather than something you have to fight like the devil to achieve um and there are all sorts of ways we can do that and obviously a big part of my books are about like, okay, how do we do that what where has done that um and what kind of evidence can we use to do that and i think that's that's essential i think locating the problem at the level of the individual uh sounds empowering and there is a place for it There's, Definitely a place for individual changes, but actually locating it entirely at the level of individ- the individual is really cruel, right? Look at a photograph of a beach in the United States 50 years ago. Everyone is what we would now call skinny or you know slim. Every literally everyone, right? There are n- there's nobody that we would call fat. Now you look at a beach and you know lots of people are very overweight, right? It's not the, re- the explanation for that is not that everyone in the United States just suddenly became individually flawed and weak-willed. That's an absolutely ludicrous thing to think, right? Or think about thing as simple as the difference, to think about places I've spent time. The difference between Lexington, Kentucky and Copenhagen in Denmark. Lexington, Kentucky, uh, most people are obese in Lexington, Kentucky, and very few people are obese in Copenhagen and in Denmark, right? Why is that? It's not that Danish people are somehow, you know, morally better people than the people in Lexington. It's that in Denmark, they've got a government that has prioritised, making sure people can get cheap, fresh, healthy food. They can bike to their work, you know, and they can walk around their city. And in Lexington, Kentucky, I mean, I tried to walk places and it's, it's literally impossible to walk other than tiny little bits of Lexington. And it's really hard to not buy you know, the kind of shitty food that I find extremely tempting and it's very hard to buy fresh and, and healthy food, especially if you don't have a lot of money. So, you know, we, I think with, a, with most of the problems that you and I are going to talk about and most of the big problems that we face, social problems, they can't be solved by isolated individuals, but they can be solved where individuals band together and collectively change the way we live.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the perspective I have, and it's the same with, with mental health in my profession, the fire service, is I've actually been very, very fortunate to have got through my career without any real problems. However, and I've had ups and downs, don't get me wrong, but however, I've also been very fortunate to grow up on a farm in England, be exposed to how to cook when I was young and what real food looks like and have healthy outlets and have good family dynamics despite you know a divorce Um so overall, was given the tools to to get through it. Um, and the issue I have is, as you said, well, you know, you're having depression. We should just do this, this, and this. Just because it worked for you doesn't mean it works for someone else. And if you're doing well, like I always talk on this, this podcast, if you're one of the ones that just is doing well, if you're staying in shape despite being a police officer, despite sitting in a car all day and sleep deprivation, all these things... Good for you. Now start helping the people that are struggling. And I think that's what the conversation is. Just because this one uber athlete has done, has done okay and they are genuinely fine mentally and physically, now you have to become the beacon for change for other people and work out where they're stumbling and how we can create an environment for people to thrive, not fail.
1: I think that's really true. I would also – and this is something you'll know more about than I do, but the, I would also use a different analogy – So car accidents are still the biggest cause of death. I mean, as we're speaking, COVID-19 might have temporarily overtaken it, but car accidents are the biggest cause of death in the United States. Sometimes it pegs with, uh, level pegs with heart attacks as well. And um, so think about the problem of car accidents, which obviously firefighters do incredible work getting people out of. Um, We don't say the problem of car accidents should be solved solely by isolated individuals, right? We used to do that, go back to the 1940s. The, um, what they did, they did, basically was very little regulation on cars. What they said was to pedestrians get out the way of the car and to drivers drive carefully, right? And we realised that didn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. So we, and we certainly don't say to, you know, if someone is mangled in a car wreck, right? We don't say to them, Well, it's your job now to, you know, enforce the speed limit. That's not what we do. This is a social problem. So we have a social response. We do a huge amount, right? We have driving tests, we have speed limits, we have airbags, we arrest uh, DUIs. Uh, There's a massive array of things that we do as a society to deal collectively with the problem of car accidents. If we left it up to isolated individuals and just said, hey, everyone, I'm going to teach you the skills to avoid speeding cars, right? Um, the, the problem would be drastically, in fact, was drastically worse when we did that, it would be drastically worse now if we carried on doing that. In a similar way, I think we need to shift our understanding of depression and addiction and anxiety so that we have a response that is more like how we deal with car accidents. Of course, once someone is mangled in a car wreck, we, you guys do your amazing work at getting them out of the car wreck and then they take it to hospital and the people in the emergency room do amazing work, piecing them back together. But that's not our main response to car accidents. Our main response is to do a huge amount of work so that we don't get to that point, right? In a similar way, we need to, we need to do something very similar with depression, anxiety, and addiction. And there's very good evidence for how we do that. We should be dealing with the problems that are causing depression, anxiety, and addiction upstream way more than we are.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, now our journey separately took us in front of the same gentleman in Lisbon, and I want to get to that, but I, I want to start at the... Uh, yes, <laughs> I want to start at the very beginning, though, because I think one of the most powerful things for me, I, as a first responder, again, pulling the curtain back, not only do I see the failure in our, our drug policy in the men and women that some we save, some that die, but also in our own first responders. Like in my immediate area here, I've lost three fellow firefighters to opiate overdose, overdoses alone. That's not counting, you know, alcohol and all these other, other, um, you know, uh, forms of addiction as well. And the, the the prison population side is also staggering. And, and we, we talked when we were going to record last week about both knowing Tom Eberhardt. the, the staggering statistic that in the 70s we had 350,000 prisoners and now we have 2.3 million prisoners here most of which are drug related in some way shape or form again if you're a numbers person shows the huge failure of the system so if you would i know you've done this on other podcasts but i think it's so important to paint the picture can you can you lead people through the 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 beginning of prohibition with Anslinger and Billy Holiday, just so people have an idea of how this even came about in the first place.
1: It's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot the last six months again because um, we, we've been making a movie out of, um, out of the story that opens Chasing the Scream. That, so, so I opened my book Chasing the Scream at this moment. I think when some people first read it, they think, well, why is he starting a book about addiction and the war on drugs with this? What's I got to do with it? It tells you so much. About why the drug war began and why it continues. In 1939, um, in a hotel in midtown Manhattan, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked onto a stage and she sang a song called Strange Fruit. A lot of your listeners will know that song. It's, um, it's a song against lynching. It's the idea that in the South there's a strange fruit that hangs from the trees and it's the mutilated bodies, murdered bodies of African-American men who had been lynched. And that night, uh, Billy Holiday got a warning from the agents of something called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics that was run by a man called Harry Anslinger. And the warning said, basically, stop singing this song. And you think that's a weird place to begin, why would you, why would you begin the story, story there, right? Um, so you've got to understand who this man was and then something about Billy Holiday. So Harry Anslinger uh, took over the Department of Alcohol Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition was ending. So he takes over this huge government department uh, that's lost the war on alcohol and is about to have nothing to do. And he invented the modern war on drugs. He's in fact the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs. Um, to to keep his department going and he built it and it was absolutely sincere in what he believed it would help people as well. He built the war on drugs around two really intense hatreds that he had. One was a really deep hatred of African-Americans and Latinos. I mean, he was he was so racist that he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s. Right? He he used the N-word so often in his official police memos. His own senator said he should have to resign, but um, but the second group he really did was uh, people with addiction problems. Uh, he'd grown up as a little boy in a place called Altoona in Pennsylvania, a, town, a small town, our farmhouse where the next door the next farm down, the farmer's wife had an addiction problem, and he was terrified of her. Um, and to him, Billie Holiday was a symbol of everything he wanted to destroy. She was an African-American woman resisting white supremacy, and she, was, uh, she had an addiction problem. When Billie Holiday, going back to what we were saying, related to what we were saying before, when Billie Holiday was um, 10 years old, a 41-year-old man called Wilbur Rich came to collect her and said, oh, your, your mother's uh, told me to come and get you and bring you to her and he, he horrifically raped her and he was sent to prison for a year. Billy Holiday was punished much more severely. She, the, the police said that she was, a, as they put it, a little whore. They said that she'd led this man on. She was sent to live in a convent away from her grandmother who she lived with and this convent tormented her. They tried to get her to, to accept an in inverted commas that she had made this man do this. She refused to do that because it wasn't true. They, I mean, tormented her in those terrible ways. They, To teach her a lesson, they locked her overnight with the dead bodies, locked her in overnight, I mean, really horrendously cruel things. And Billie Holiday had enough sanity to see that I'm not taking this shit. And she ran away to be with her mother. but Her mother was working in a brothel in, in Harlem. And when Billie Holiday got there, she started kind of working, in again, in inverted commas, uh, alongside her mother, so she was being prostituted. She was being raped by, by strangers when she was quite young, night after night after night. And in in those circumstances, Billie Holiday was terribly traumatised, and she started seeking out the whatever anaesthetic she could get. So she, started, initially drank a lot of alcohol, and then used a lot of heroin. Um, but when Harry Anslinger tells her to stop singing this song, she effectively said, "Fuck you! I'm an American citizen." I'll sing what I damn well please. And that was when Harry Anslinger resolved to destroy her. So he um, he hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday, it'd be kind of obvious. So he employed an African-American agent named Jimmy Fletcher. And he said to Jimmy, follow Billie Holiday everywhere she goes, track her, um, document her drug use, we're gonna bust her. And so Jimmy Fletcher. This is part of the focus of the movie. Uh, Billy uh, Jimmy Fletcher followed Billy Holiday everywhere, and um, Billy Holiday was so amazing that he fell in love with her. And his whole life, he felt really ashamed of what he did next. He busted her. She was put on trial. She said the trial was called the United States versus Billy Holiday, and that's how it damn well felt. Um, the movie is called the United States versus Billy Holiday, and. Um, She was sent to prison for 18 months. She didn't sing a word in prison. And when she got out, um, the cruelest thing really happened to her, which is that to perform anywhere where alcohol was served, which was pretty much everywhere where you could sing, you needed something that was called a cabaret performer's license. And Anslinger made sure she didn't get it. Uh, One of her friends, Yolanda Baban said to me, what's the cruelest thing you can do to someone is to take away the thing they love this is what we do to people with addiction problems all over the world. You know, we punish them and shame them and give them criminal records. And in that circumstance, Billie Holiday relapsed. One day she collapsed in Midtown, not very far from where she first saw strange fruit. She was taken to a hospital. First hospital wouldn't even take her because she had an addiction problem. Second hospital let her in. Um, and they diagnosed her with liver cancer um, And she didn't have any heroin in the hospital, so she went into withdrawal, which is very dangerous if you're as weak as she was with liver cancer. And her friend, mainly Duffy managed to insist they give her methadone, which they did. Uh, And she got better. And then after 10 days, Anstinger's rules meant that she got cut off. And she died the next day. One of her friends told the BBC that she looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. And I think this the story is so important for so many reasons. It tells you about what the drug war was about right from the start. It was about racism. It was about destroying people with addictions, not helping them, shaming them and punishing them and making their lives worse. But also to me, it tells something much more important, even more important, which is, you know, in this culture, we tell one story about addiction that's admirable, that people with addiction problems sometimes recover. And that is indeed admirable, and everyone listening to your podcast, who's recovered from addiction, deserves a huge amount of love and congratulations. But that's not the only heroic story about addiction, right? Billie Holiday never stopped being addicted. Um, She died with an addiction problem. Um, She was still a hero. You know, no matter what they did to her, she always found somewhere to sing strange fruit, right? She would go to the worst parts of the Deep South where they threw bottles at her. And she sang her song. I remember, yeah, I didn't put this in the book, but I wish I had. Yolanda Bavan, who's a, 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 herself a great jazz singer, who um, knew Billie Holiday, said to me, you know, towards the end of her life, Billie Holiday thought she'd be completely forgotten. No one would remember her. And um, I said to her, what would you say to Billie Holiday if you could speak to her now? And she said, I'd say to her, Billy, today I went into Whole Foods and they were playing your songs. Nobody forgot you, baby. And I think in some ways, like this conflict between Billy Holiday and Harry Anslinger continues, right? Most of the world still follows some version of Harry Anslinger's war on drugs. And it makes us weaker and sicker than we need to be. And yet all over the world, people listen to Billy Holiday and it makes them stronger and it makes them psychologically richer and it makes them better and uh that conflict goes on
0: yeah it's it's so so awful when you read the book and anyone listening to this you need to read chasing the Scream. simple as that if you especially if you're in any sort of first responder profession where you're a part of the story but when you take a step back and look at addiction as a mental health problem and not and i've talked about this in so many episodes oh just a bum just a hooker just a you know whatever just a gangbanger but you actually take into someone's life story from that giggling little t- toddler to where they are today sending someone to prison because they had audacity to become dependent on a drug is just so nonsensical and you know we'll get to, to portugal in a moment but you know, it, fundamentally, it's not working. Say, say it was this great experiment. We know now purely from the numbers of incarcerated men and women that it is not working. You've been shaming them for a 100 years. That has not worked. You told people to pull themselves together and get over it. That hasn't worked. So we are at a crossroads now. And thank goodness there are some countries that are leading the way where we have to fucking reinvent this because it has not worked. It's so broken it's causing more crime on the streets. It's causing more of our fellow first responders to be murdered in the streets. And our citizens are, you know, are being locked away by the millions, the millions, because they had the audacity to be addicted. And it is just, it's crazy.
1: I think that's, that, that, that's, that's true. And I think it's, so sometimes people say, oh, the war on drugs doesn't work. Truth is actually quite a bit worse than that it makes the problem a lot worse. And it's interesting because in a way anyone who's ever loved someone with an addiction problem, you know, will feel this conflict in them and we'll have a kind of, we all have a Harry Anselinger in our heads that looks at someone with an addiction problem and thinks, oh, someone should just stop you, right? And why are you doing this? But most of us have a more compassionate part as well. And I think, you know, something that really changed my mind about this or, you know, I was never in favor of punishing people with addiction problems or anything like that, but something that really helped me to see the madness of well, quite how harmful what we do is, is when I, I kind of learned that I had actually really deeply misunderstood what addiction is. Um, so, like I say, you know, we had addiction in my family, and I had a very clear story about addiction in my head, uh, which is which everyone listening to this podcast will have heard in some form, which is let's take heroin addiction because that's something that was close to me. If, if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for chasing the screen, whenever it was eight, nine years ago now, um, what causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were an idiot. And I would have said, well, the clues in the name dummy, obviously heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for a hundred years. It's actually been a big resurgence during the opioid crisis. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that. Um, uh, the, the, it's not totally wrong, but turns out to be one part of a much bigger picture. So we think, you know, I'm sitting here in, in London. We think if I kidnap the next 20 people to walk past my uh, apartment, and like a villain in a horror movie, I injected them all with heroin every day for a month. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically crave, right? That they'd start having this tremendous physical hunger for heroin. Um, In fact, that's why we call it being hooked, right? Because you crave the physical hook. The first thing that alerted me to the fact that there's something too simplistic about this story is when it was explained to me in Britain, you know, if I step out of this interview now and I get hit by a truck, uh, and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's, the medically, it's, it's medically pure heroin. It's actually much better shit than I'd ever score on the streets, right? Because it's pure. Um, people in Britain are given this drug in hospitals. Quite often, if anyone listening to this has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the chemical hooks. What should be happening to all these people in British hospitals, right? They should be leaving and trying to score. Some of them should, right? Granny should be leaving with this tremendous physical hunger and so on. This has been studied very carefully. It doesn't happen, right? And when I learned that and read the relevant scientific studies, I just thought, I can't be right. How could it be that you would have someone in a hospital bed being given a shit tonne of really powerful, potent, pure heroin and they don't become addicted? And then you've got someone in the alleyway outside the hospital shooting up actually a weaker form of the drug and they do become addicted. I didn't I didn't get it. And I only really began to understand it when I went to Vancouver interviewed an amazing man named Professor Bruce Alexander who did an experiment that's really transformed how people think about addiction all over the world including in Portugal where you am. So um, Professor Alexander explained to me that this story of addiction that we have in our heads that comes primarily or totally from the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments, your listeners can try them at home if they're feeling a bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself. So there you go, right? That's our story. But in the seventies, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage. It's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. All it's got is the drug. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, they can have loads of sex. Anything a rat would want in life is there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it none of them use it compulsively, none of them ever overdose. So they go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful. Now there's lots of human examples that show the same thing that I can talk about if you like. But what I realized is, you know, this shows us that the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, important though that is to many people. The opposite of addiction is connection. You know, the, the the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And and once you understand that, you can see where we started, which is that why the drug war is such a disaster. The drug war is based on the idea. Think about it. It's been a holiday. The drug war is based on the idea that if someone's got an addiction problem, you need to punish them in order to give them an incentive to stop. But once you understand that pain is the cause of addiction. Pain is the driver of addiction. You can see that actually what you're doing is pouring more fuel on the fire. You're making the addiction worse when you punish people. So all this drug war infrastructure that claims it's about protecting our children, it doesn't do that. I can talk about if you want. That claims it's about reducing addiction. Actually, it's making addiction worse.
0: Yeah, No. I, and I see that. You see, that's the thing. I get to see that from the streets and on the East Coast and the West Coast as a first responder. And... It's a, it's a, it?
1: Wait, what how do how do you see it? How does it become visible?
0: Um, so you what you see is, for example, pulling a sheet over a fourteen year old boy who's been murdered in a gang, you know, warfare. Um, you see the the OD that you save in a Dunkin' Donuts by having to stick a needle in her neck because she's so atrophied on her on her AC area, you know, the normal place we do needles. You see the the um <laughs> The accidental overdose of so the guy had shoulder surgery and, and either forgot or was, was taking too much. You see it all over the back. And there's so many, you know, dead people in my little Rolodex of memories just from 14 years. That's a very short time. That's the East coast. It's the West coast. And then factoring in the firefighters that I've lost, you know, personally that weren't the patients. They were responders and they also were the patients. And I think that, you know, that's what made it so powerful. So the backstory of how I ended up in Portugal, my, my mother and brother moved to Portugal about 20 years ago um, from England, kind of just created a new, a new foundation out there. And I started the podcast. And so obviously, I was talking a lot more about just social problems in general. And she said, did you know they decriminalize drugs here? And I was like, no, I'd never heard of that. So I started researching it. Initially, was trying to get one of the, the police officers from the vice special that they did about it. Um, but at the end, I just emailed Zhao. Zhao Gulao, who was the man that spearheaded this this incentive and i said i'm going to be out there could i come see you and he was like yeah so i got to sit down with zhao the same way as you do and I'll, and I'll obviously let you tell the story but i saw it for myself it wasn't like i read it in some newspaper article so having witnessed it myself and coming from a first responder perspective knowing it doesn't work you know tell me about your journey to lisbon and and, and what you saw them doing there
1: I'm so glad you met Shiraz, isn't he an amazing man?
0: Oh, so, so nice. And and just, I mean, talk about changing the world. He, his, his passion has saved hundreds of thousands of lives in that country.
1: Yeah, he's an incredible person. Uh, and he was absolutely central to the change that happened. So the, the, I'm interested to hear more about what you saw there. I mean, the, the, the way it began is that by the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. Uh, 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they tried essentially the American way more. They arrested more people, they imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse and one day the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition got together and they said look, we we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? So they decided to do something incredibly radical, something nobody had done in 70 years of the drug war, they said, should we like, ask some scientists what we should do? So they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by João Gulau, who had set up the first drug treatment centre in Portugal after the fall of the dictatorship in the early 1970s and in 1972, I think it was, and they said to, they said to this panel, it was doctors, social workers and a judge. They said to them, oh, and some social scientists, they said, you guys go away. Look at all the best evidence about addiction, go anywhere you need to go in the world, take as much time as you need, and we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. So just took it out of politics. So the panel went away, they looked at loads of things, they looked at Rat Park, amongst other things, and they came back and they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to crack, a whole lot. but. And this is the crucial next step. We're going to spend all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, harassing them, arresting them, imprisoning them. And we're going to spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment in the United States. So there's some residential rehab that has some value. But the biggest thing they did was a big program of meaning and job creation for people with addiction problems. Um, Say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage, they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. They set up a big program to distribute small loans to people with addiction problems so they could set up and run businesses about things that they wanted to do. The goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, that had been in place that system for 13 years. And the results were very clear. Portugal went from being almost at the top of the European league tables for drug problems to the very bottom. Um, overdose deaths were down by more than 50%. Injecting drug use was massively down. Um, HIV transmission was massively down. And one of the ways you know it works so well is that you know Portugal's democracy. They've got five big political parties None of them want to go back. And I went to interview uh, another amazing person called João Figueroa, who was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalization. And he said what lots of people totally understandably say when we talk about decriminalizing all drugs, he said, this is crazy. What are you fucking talking about? This is gonna cause an explosion in drug use and in children using drugs and more overdoses. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years shaming and punishing people under the old system when he saw now that he could have been helping them all along. And I think this is something I saw everywhere in the world that's gone beyond the war on drugs from Uruguay, to Vancouver, to Switzerland, to Portugal. There's always a pattern before it happens, it's incredibly controversial and people think it's madness. And then they see it in practice and it's not a magic bullet, they still have problems in all those places, but the problems reduce so significantly that quite quickly, the things that were regarded as crazy become seen as just common sense. And the things that were, the, the old system of prohibition comes, actually begins to be seen as what it should be seen as, which is the radical crazy option you know, the one that doesn't
0: work. Exactly. And and I think that one of the big, big things that, you know, Zhao was talking about was that their big surge came after a lot of their soldiers came home that were fighting in one of the African nations. So for all the first responders, police officers, military listening, you know, you, you go send these young men into a place where they're probably going to, you know, see and do some things that are going to create some sort of mental trauma they're leaning on the addiction. Now they're coming back. So again, now these, these people that fought for their country are now being arrested and, you know, homeless and thrown in jail. Um, instead of looking like we've been talking for the last hour at this is a psychological issue. So when Zhao explained that by doing this, this different, you know, way of, uh, of taking care of addicts, now the addict, the person who's looking to reach out, the person who wants help, can come out of the shadows because they're not afraid of being arrested. They're not going to get, um, you know, a criminal record that's then going to prohibit them from from getting a good job and getting back on in the right track. Right now, you're an addict. Not only do you have your addiction, not only are you then going to find probably exactly the same drug in many of the prisons. But once you get out, you've got that that record holding you down, you know, for for years and years and years. So as we mentioned earlier, which of those two systems? set a human being up for success to overcome an addiction and become a thriving member of society. I
1: often say to people, you know, because people, you know, we've all been raised under prohibition. It can be hard to get your head around some of these things. I often say to people, when will you stop smoking? Will it be the week when you lose your home and you lose your job and your wife leaves you? Probably not. You'll probably smoke more, right? Think about the joke in airplane, you know, chose the wrong week to quit smoking, right? Um, you're probably actually um, quit smoking when things are going really well for you and you're actually, your stress levels are lower and maybe you're on a beautiful vacation or something great is going on in your life, right? Why would it be any different for other addictions? Why would driving someone into the dirt make them less likely to want to anaesthetise themselves, right? And I think you, you've gone to another really important thing that I think is probably relevant to your, to your listeners, which is that what they found in Portugal... And I spoke to lots of lots of people in lots of different fields who said this is that it transformed the relationship between the authorities and people who had addiction problems. So when social workers were going looking, when doctors and paramedics were going to provide help, they were no longer part of a machine that was, you know, criminalizing and stigmatizing and oppressing people. Actually, the whole machinery of the government was about helping people with addiction problems not punishing them. And sometimes we say, you know, <clears throat> oh, you know, we, we, we need to be more compassionate. But it's very hard. I'd say it's impossible to be properly compassionate under a system of prohibition for the authorities to be compassionate. You can't say what you're doing is a crime and we're going to punish and shame you. Um, but we're compassionate towards you, right? Those are incompatible things. Um, so I think I think you're right. And I, and I think about the contrast, you know, not long after I was in Portugal, I was in Washington, DC and I spent some time with this amazing woman called Billy Tyler. She's a street nurse. Her her son had died of an overdose a few years before. And so she did just voluntary street nursing um, in DC, just going and helping people with addiction problems, needle distribution and things like that. And never forget, Billy, we were outside this wooden house in Anacostia which is one of the poorest parts of DC and Billy talking about how in this house there were people who um, they had a necrotic tissue around their wounds so the, where they'd been injecting and, and gone wrong and um, these people were treated so badly in the hospitals uh, that they had what they were doing to deal with the necrotic tissue is they had got maggots out of the garbage, and they put the maggots into their wounds because that will, the maggots will eat your necrotic tissue. And um, I remember sitting there with her and we could, I can't remember if we could see it from that spot, but very close by, you can see the Senate building, right? And I just thought, we are at the capital of the richest society there has ever been, right? We're at the very heart of it. We, we can see the Senate. You know, the White House is not far away. And people are living in wooden houses and putting maggots into their into their wounds. This is a crazy situation, right? And it's a sign of how um, dysfunctional the drug war is, that that it that it puts people in this in this position. And we don't have to live like this, right? I, it was so maddening to me going around in the U.S. for chasing the screen and and. You know, again, I think it was—I think it was after I went. I could be wrong about this, but I think it was after I went to Portugal that I went to Arizona. It might have been before. Um, I, I, in Arizona, in Maricopa County, I went out with a group of women who were made to go out on a chain gang, wearing T-shirts saying "I was a drug addict," while members of the public mock them and jeer at them. Um, this, was, this was all overseen by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who. Um, people will remember was that, he was actually a personal disciple of Harry Anslinger. His face lit up when I mentioned Harry Anslinger. He knew Anslinger well and um, and Arpaio was himself a, uh, later revealed to be a criminal. He was illegally, racially profiling people and President Trump pardoned him. But the, I remember going out on the, with these with these women and you, know, you talked to them about their lives and they were like Billie Holiday, just tales of horrendous abuse. I'm just thinking, God, if you were in Portugal, they'd be giving you loans to set up a small business, you know? And here you are, you're on a chain gang being made to, you know, dig graves while people honk and laugh at you. You know, it, it's so mad. And and, and I think um, it's not hard for people to see why those women, it's not just that the drug war doesn't work, right? It's that it those women are even more broken and even more humiliated and even more likely to become addicted. And we know this, right? We know uh, the Open Society Foundations have done good research on this. Yeah, you know, I went to Vietnam where they make people, you know, uh, people with addiction problems uh, forced to go into basically kind of gulags, forced labor camps where they're screamed at and made to just lift rocks all day. And what happens? 99% of them relapse within a couple of weeks. <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons, right? Um, so at some point, we're going to have to stop copying the places that have failed, disastrously failed, and start copying the places that have succeeded. It is not a coincidence that the United States has had the worst drug war, one of the mo- not the worst, one of the most intense drug wars in the world, and now has one of the worst addiction crises in the world, right? That's not it's not just an accident, right? That's it's partly, not entirely. There's lots of other things going on. That it's partly because of this failed policy. Um, At some point we have to stop copying the places that succeeded. We have to stop copying Portugal and Switzerland. You know, and the one thing you can say in defense of the American drug war is my God, the United States government gave it a fair shot. The US has fought the drug war for a hundred years. They've spent a trillion dollars. They, a conservative estimate, they've killed hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. As you pointed out, rightly, they've imprisoned millions of their own citizens. In fact, they've imprisoned a higher proportion of their population than Stalin or Chairman Mao ever did. Um, And at the end of all, they've destroyed whole countries like Colombia and El Salvador uh, and, and Mexico. And at the end of all that, in the US, we can't even keep drugs out of our prisons where we pay someone to walk around the wall perimeter the whole time. So good luck with the idea you're ever going to keep them out of the United States. We've got to give up on this utopian absurdity that you can get rid of drugs. There's never been a drug-free society. There never will be a drug-free society for as long as humans exist. And instead, actually, you know, live in the real world.
0: Yeah, well, a good point that you make. And, and it's, it's such a simple comparison, but it's so true. You know, when alcohol was in prohibition, there were gangs murdering each other. And, you know, as you mentioned, and I laugh about it, but it's so true. I've never seen, you know, Coors and Miller Lite in a big gang warfare in the middle of New York, you know? So when you take, when you cut the head off the snake, say, you know, you, you legalize or, or decriminalize, depending on which, which, um, framework they use, the very people that, that prey on the weak, the drug dealers, the drug smugglers, these horrendous gangs that have come out of this, the supply and demand is the most basic economics, the same way as you've done with marijuana in Colorado and some of the other places. You know, I wonder now how many people succeed selling weed illegally in those states when you can just go safely, hold your head up high, go into a dispensary, get what you need, and walk out. So, understanding, you know, seeing the fringe society, seeing the deaths, the murders, the overdoses, all this th- that so many people listening do. You have to reverse engineer. If you want the crime to stop, you have to st- stop empowering the criminals. And the criminals' currency are the drugs. You take that over, you make it legal, and obviously then filter all that money, as you said, that we were spending on the quote-unquote drug war, and put it into you know, mental health counseling, job creation, safe um, you know, injection sites, You you take all the power away. I mean, imagine, I I can't imagine what the Mexican border would look like if we decriminalize drugs. I mean, you probably wouldn't even have the immigration problem that you have because people wouldn't be flooding out of that country because they're fearing for their lives.
1: I think it's important to distinguish between decriminalization and legalization. So decriminalization is where you stop punishing drug users, but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drugs. Legalisation is where you open up some legal route for them to get their drugs, and that's different for different drugs. No one is suggesting there should be a heroin aisle in CVS or anything, but there can be legal routes to heroin that are not that, like as Switzerland did. I can tell you about that if you want. But you're right. I think you've gone to what I think is the biggest moral issue around the drug war. Um, you know, I think as you can tell that the, what we do to people with addiction problems is very close to my heart. That's not actually the worst thing we do. The worst thing we do is what you're talking about, which is the violence caused by prohibition. And if you think about that, if you want to understand that, just do a very simple thought experiment. Anyone listening, go and try to steal a bottle of vodka, right? Just go and try to steal one. The store that sells the vodka, if they catch you, um, they won't shoot you, right? They'll call the cops, the cops will come and take you away. Um, so that, that store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. It's got the power of the law to uphold its property rights. Okay. Now imagine you don't want to steal a bag of vodka. Let's imagine you want to steal a bottle of vodka. I'll say again. Now imagine you don't steal a bottle of vodka. Imagine you go and steal a bag of cocaine or a bag of heroin or a bag of meth. Right? Obviously, the person who sells that, and there will be someone in your neighborhood selling it, can't call the cops, right? The cops would come and arrest them. They've got to fight you. Now they don't want to have a, they don't want to have a fight every day. Right? So as the many drug dealers I spent time with for Chasing the Scream explained to me, you've got to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one will be foolish enough to pick a fight with you. Right? So, you know, you, 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 you establish your place in the neighbourhood through intimidation, through fear, through theatrical acts of violence. Um, As the writer Charles Bowden put it, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs, right? Everyone listening to your podcast knows who Al Capone was. I bet no one listening knows the name of the head of Budweiser, right, or the head of Smirnoff. Why is that? Um, There's a a, a professor at Harvard called Jeffrey Myron who um, has an amazing graph of the murder rate in the 20th century in the United States, massively shoots up when alcohol is banned and drops like a stone after alcohol is legalized again, right? Just like you said, the head of Budweiser doesn't go and shoot the head of Coors in the face, right? But drug gang alcohol gangs did fight and did kill people to, uh, to extraordinarily high level when alcohol was banned. What changed? Not the drug. Alcohol is the same thing it was before and the same thing after. <clears throat> what changed is the system of legal regulation around the drug. And you're absolutely right about. If you think about places like Mexico, I mean, I spent a lot of time in northern Mexico, in El Salvador, in Colombia. That the scale of the death there and the insane violence. You know, I, I spent time with a, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Los Zetas, a guy called Rosario Reta, who between the ages of fourteen and seventeen had butchered and beheaded about seventy people. I <laughs> had a funny experience when I went to interview him. In um, he's in prison now in Tyler County in Texas. And on the way in, the guard said to me, you know, uh, obviously we can't leave you alone with him because he's like beheaded 70 people. I was like, oh, good. Thanks. Stick around. (laughs) (laughs) Ten minutes into talking to him, I turned around and I realized they'd fucking laugh me with him. But uh, but anyway, the... um Now, Rosario would have been a troubled person in any situation, but there is no one who would have given him the means to butcher and behead 70 people and would have been able to take over the police in their neighbourhood and mean that the police turned a blind eye because the police are effectively controlled by the drug gangs in lots of parts of northern Mexico if drugs weren't prohibited, right? Pablo Escobar's son, Sebastián Marroquín, has become a friend of mine, and he said to me, you know, the only thing my father ever truly feared was the legalization of drugs. If drugs were legal, my dad would have been a used car salesman and you would have never heard his name. And that's that's true.
0: Yeah, it's, 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 it's so simple. That's what's so hard. So many discussions I have with people like yourself and you know, just great men and women in their fields is the answer to, for example – you know, good, good overall health. You've got good nutrition. You've got moving a lot. Obviously, you've got addressing mental health, you know, uh, trauma, but that's it. You know, it, it the, the actual true solutions are so simple. And where it gets screwed up is when people want to start making money out of, you know, item x so now all of a sudden oh you don't know how to exercise but if you get my exercise machine and my 12 dvd set i'll show you how to actually exercise oh you don't need to you don't need to worry about fresh fruit and vegetables buy my weight watchers prepared meals and and, and i'll feed you for you know what i mean and it, and that's the problem i think with this drugs is people have just been smoke and mirror to the point where the root cause it's so freaking simple seems ridiculous now the same way as people belittled Anyone that mentioned the word organic 20 years ago, which organic means don't spray my fucking food with chemicals. <laughs> you know, so the brainwashing is on on us, the citizens. And and the more Yeah.
1: You know, I think you're right. I think there's some you know there's some complexity in how you think about legalization because <laughs> we need to move to a, a legal regulated ways of accessing these drugs. But that does mean different things for different drugs. In the same way that, um, you know, in California where you are, I'm sure it is legal to own a dog, a monkey, and a lion. But um, I'm sure the rules are different, right? So for a dog, you just go into a store. For a monkey, I suspect you need a license. And for a lion, I'm sure they come and like, <laughs> you know, like, like they should have done with the Tiger King guy in Oklahoma. I'm sure they come and like inspect your house and make sure you're not a crazy person, right? You can't just have a tiger anywhere, a lion anywhere. In the same way, when we say that drugs should be legal, of course, we don't mean all drugs should be available in the way that alcohol is, right? And um, now I think there are lots of drugs that should be, I think cannabis should be, I think we've been moved to a license. For, I mean, I would prefer a non-profit model, but okay, the model we have is a lot better than prohibition. The model that's emerging is, is, even though it's a commercial model is a lot better than prohibition. Um, but with something like, so, and I think that we should experiment with that for things like ecstasy and so on. But um, that would not be a good model for heroin, for example. I, I don't know many, I mean, there's some very hardcore libertarians who would just have open cell heroin. But I don't know many people, even in the drug reform world, who are in favour of that. So you think, well, what's the legal route we can allow? And, and this is not a theoretical question. So um, as we mentioned, my dad's from Switzerland. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. Uh, investigating this because Switzerland legalised heroin for people with addiction problems. And it's a model that's really worth thinking about. So at the same time that Portugal was having its catastrophic drugs crisis, Switzerland had a really bad drug problem um, in the the late 90s. Um, Very high levels of heroin use and overdose. And they tried all sorts of things and it was just a nightmare. And it. You know, people might remember famous scenes in the 90s of like Swiss parks full of like people injecting each other in the neck and just really, really heart-rending scenes. And then so Switzerland tried all sorts of forms of punishment. And then they got their first female president, a really incredible woman named Ruth Dreyfus. It's one of my favourite, she's my candidate for president of the world. And um, Ruth looked at the science and she'd been health minister before, so she knew a lot about this. And Ruth explained to Swiss people, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos. What we have now, she said, is anarchy and chaos. That's what prohibition is. Prohibition means unknown users, uh, sorry, unknown dealers, selling unknown chemicals to unknown users, all in the dark, all filled with violence and disease and chaos. Legalization, she said, is the way we restore order to this chaos. And so like I say, obviously it's not, she wasn't proposing that you just go and openly buy heroin, you know, from a a store in a supermarket or anything. The way it works is if you've got a heroin problem, there's all sorts of options for you, but one of them, is that you can be assigned to a clinic. I spent a lot of time with the one in Geneva. You go to that clinic, you go there at seven o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things in early. Um, you turn up, you're given your heroin. It's medically pure heroin. They don't charge you anything for it. Uh, you can't take it out with you, partly because they don't want you to resell it on the streets, and partly because they want to check you're okay when you use it. You use it there, you inject yourself with the needle they give you, or, or a nurse can inject you if you want. And one of the interesting things is they will give you any dose you want, apart from one that would kill you. There is never any pressure to cut back. And then you leave and you go to your job because you're given loads of support and help to get housing, given a lot of therapy, and you're given a lot of support to find a job. And um, by the time I went to Switzerland, this, this program had been in place for 14 years. And in that time, according to Professor Ambrose Uchtenhagen, who's the leading expert on this, there have been zero heroin overdose deaths on the legal program. That's, that's, that's zero, that's nobody, that's more people have died in the United States of heroin overdoses by significant amounts, since I started talking to you, than have died in all those years, 14 years, at that time, 14 years. um, There had been an enormous fall in street crime. There was an enormous fall in, there was some heroin use outside the legal programme, but that massively fell because who wants to buy expensive shitty street heroin when you can get free medically pure heroin from the government. But to me, the most surprising thing about this, well, there were loads of surprising things. Ruth, the former president, lives opposite this clinic. I think that tells you something. Um, There's so many interesting things. I mean, uh, and Switzerland had a referendum on this. Switzerland is a very conservative country. I mean, my Swiss relatives make Donald Trump look like AOC. And yet 70% of Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal, not because they're so compassionate. They're not. It's just that it's so much cheaper and it massively reduces crime. Right. Um, But to me, the most interesting thing, it's so embarrassing to say, because it shows how little I understood the problem <clears throat> It was exactly that thing about they'll give you any dose you want, right? Well, they give you one that will kill you, but any dose. And there's never any pressure to cut back. And yet when I went there, there was almost nobody who'd been on the program, who was still in the prescription program, who'd been on it from the start. And I remember saying to Rita Mangi, the, um, Psychiatrist who ran the program. Well, what, how can that be? Because we're told these drugs take you over, you need more and more of them. Um, if you had a free infinite supply, why would you why would you ever stop? And she looked at me like I was stupid, and she said, Well, we help them. And as their lives get better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much. <laughs> Which is kind of like painfully obvious when once it's explained to you. But um, you know, so, so yeah, that, that's a model of legalisation that's not open sale, you know, regulated open sale. Um, and I think what we need to do, we basically had an experiment for 100 years in the entire world, having one option, which is ban everything, transfer it to criminal gangs, imprison the users and addicts. <laughs> now we need to have experiments with the alternatives. And maybe some of the experiments won't work, right? We'll have to wait and see. But we should have experiments with all sorts of alternatives, different models of legal regulation, legal regulated use. So for some people that will be, you know, not-for-profit cannabis clubs like in Spain. Some places that will be commercial cannabis sales. Some people that will be places that will be licensed to ecstasy sales. You know, we we Some places that will be prescription heroin. And they want to experiment in, some people in Australia want to experiment with a sort of prescription form of meth. We need all sorts of different experiments and then we'll see some of them will work some of them won't it's hard to imagine it will be worse than what we have now but if it is we'll go back mark you know so far everywhere that has experimented with the alternatives has found that it's been an improvement and doesn't want to go back which is not to say it's perfect it's not right but it's a really significant
0: improvement yeah well then that's the thing is that other countries have done that experiment for the rest of the world you know so it's 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 happened, and people are like, "Oh, you know the cultures aren't the same. well no, it's not apples to apples exactly, but like you said, you know it's gonna be an improvement, and the problem is everyone thinks like you know black and white are the only two solutions. Well, say you shift that needle three quarters of the way the other way, that is a huge win in statistics that's you know in, in political um races, that's a landslide, but you don't want to try it because you think that you're you know, the people in America are so, so different than the Swiss people or the Portuguese people. We're all just people fundamentally. And yes, there are different cultural things. And we have, you know, such a high level of, of crime and, um, you know, illegal, illicit drug use here at the moment that, of course, the, the, the slope might be a little less steep than some of these smaller countries. But the other way, how like you said, hasn't worked. And right now it's costing us a fortune. My, our, first resp- I mean, our, yeah, our first responders are dying, our citizens are dying the prisons are uh, expanding and expanding and expanding what have we got to lose? Like, absolutely nothing.
1: I think you're right, I would also say the US is in a much more advantageous place to do this than Portugal. Portugal had a worse drug problem than the United States has at the moment when it did this and Portugal is a much poorer country than the United States much poorer You know, Portugal would be almost the poorest state in the union um, so, you know, it's not like Portugal. had. The, I mean, Switzerland is a very uh, wealthy and prosperous society, but Portugal isn't. Uruguay isn't, you know, um, there's plenty of places that have <laughs> um, transitioned away from the drug war that had less resources than the United States. So, um, and bigger problems. So I don't, I, this idea that the US couldn't do it for cultural reasons is, is bullshit. And by the way, the US used to do it <laughs> relatively recently. Most of the existence of the United States. Most of the drugs that are currently banned were legal. Right. So and didn't they didn't have worse problems than they had. Now, in fact, they had significantly smaller problems than they have now. That's not only because of the drug war. Obviously, there's all sorts of other changes that have happened. But I think you're right that the need for it now is greater than it has. The need for a change drug policy is greater than it's ever been.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the opioid crisis. I had, um, Sam Quinones who wrote Dreamland and, you know, kind of focusing on the, the pill mills, which my state here, I'm actually in Florida now. So the, the Broward County area of South Florida was the absolute hub for a lot of those pill mills. So you had all these Americans, these, you know, like not people living on the street, not gangbangers, but actually, Working people that were now getting addicted, then the pill mills were closed down. Now they're turning the black tar heroin, which I know that route was certainly what killed some of my my friends that I lost. Um, tell me about your perspective on the opioid crisis.
1: So I like Sam Canones, I think he's a good writer, but I think what he wrote about this is um, missing a really big part of the picture. And I'm quite worried about the story people have been told about the opioid crisis. Because if you have a story that's too simplistic, you seek solutions that are too simplistic. So I think it's worth stepping back a bit. We were talking before about chemical hooks. And um, chemical hooks are real, they're just a small part of addiction. There's one way we, there's lots of reasons scientists have shown this, but I'll give you just an example that everyone will get. So there's an experiment in chemical hooks that actually some of your listeners will be taking part in right now. So people know, it's been scientists know, it's been proven, now, if you smoke a lot, um, the chemical hook that you become addicted to and physically crave is nicotine. And I, I think about this a lot because my mother smokes 70 cigarettes a day. There's a photograph of me and her when I'm six months old where she's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> and when, I, um, when I found this photo about a couple of years ago, I showed it to her. I thought she'd be really guilty. She said, you were a fucking difficult baby. I needed that cigarette. But um, so.
0: (laughs) No wonder you live (laughs) with your grandma.
1: (laughs) So the chemical hook that my mother would crave if she ever stopped smoking, but she never would, um, would be nicotine, right? Um, So in the late 1980s, nicotine patches were invented. And there's this huge wave of optimism because they thought, addiction to cigarettes is addiction to the chemical hook, nicotine. Well, nicotine patches give you all of the nicotine that you physically crave with none of this awful carcinogenic smoke. Great. People are going to stop smoking and nicotine patches became commercially available. And what happened? Some people did stop smoking. The US Surgeon General's report, a major investigation into nicotine patches, found that 17% of people, one 7%, 17%, 17% of highly motivated smokers, given nicotine patches, stop. That ain't nothing, right? 17% of people is a lot of people. You map that across the US population, that saved a very large number of people's lives. But 17% is an enormous way from 100%. Something else is going on for that other 83%. Uh, that isn't just the craving for the chemical hook, right? And let's remind people there's a broad agreement that nicotine is the most powerful chemical hook out there, right? So now let's think about opioid addiction. So the dominant story that has been told to people about the opioid crisis is this, it's not totally wrong. It's just way too limited. (laughs) Basically, Um, A group of evil drug dealers came along, who in this case happened to be the Sackler family and the other big pharma companies. And they gave people this uniquely powerful drug and it took them over and they had this desperate craving for the chemical hooks. And that's what their addiction is, right? That it came from exposure to the chemical hooks. Now, the chemical hooks in prescription opioids are real. And you will experience physical withdrawal if you use them for a while and stop. And that's not to be underestimated. It's a real phenomenon. Um, But it's way too simplistic. Firstly, the vast majority of people who use prescription opioids do not become addicted. And crucially, where are the addictions happening, right? People on the faculty of Harvard are much more likely to be able to, well, as a fact, have much easier access to prescription opioids than any, than, than any other part of the population because they have extremely good health care, right? Extremely good uh, health plans. Addiction to prescription opioids is very low on the faculty of Harvard. Might be some, but it's very low. People in West Virginia um, have very poor medical coverage compared to the rest of the country, certainly compared to the faculty at Harvard, and they have amongst the highest levels of opioid prescription Uh, opioid addiction in the country, indeed in the world, right? If it was just about ease of access and exposure, that would make no sense. So what's going on in West Virginia that's not going on in the faculty of Harvard, right? You would have to spend long in West Virginia or uh, Monadnock in New Hampshire, one of the other epicenters of the opioid crisis where I spent some time to see the answer, right? Through no fault of their own, the people of Monadnock, the people of West Virginia, have been stripped of the things that make life worth living, right? Just like everyone has physical needs for food, for water, for shelter, everyone has psychological needs. You need to have meaningful work. You need to have a secure future. You need to have community. You need to feel that other people see you and value you. And the people of West Virginia have been humiliated and stripped of the things that gave them status and meaning, right? The industries that they worked in, the whole society they knew has been pulled away from them. Um, You know, there's a very good study that showed when a factory closes down, opioid addictions double in the period after. Now, if that was just due to the chemical hooks in the drug, that would make no sense. But when we understand the lesson of Rat Park, it makes perfect sense. The people who've done the best research on this are professors Angus Dayton and Anne Case, who you should totally interview, who call these deaths of despair, right? Opioid overdose deaths are at their highest, where non opioid based suicides are highest, where chemical antidepressant prescriptions are highest. Why would that be, right? Why would that be an extraordinary coincidence if those things had no bearing on this, right? If you strip people of the things that make life worth living, lots of them will seek to anesthetize themselves. If you wanna understand, so understand why people are taking so many, if you wanna understand why people are taking so many painkillers, you've got to understand why they're in so much pain. And um, to tell a simplistic story, go right back to where we started with the o- uh, obesity, right? The sexually abused people who um, bec- me- who become obese to protect themselves, right? Um, Dr. Felitti, who did that experiment, said to me, he realised it's like there's a fire inside these people and we've been focusing on the smoke. And I think that analogy works quite well for the opioid crisis, right? Now, that is not to dispute that big pharmaceutical companies behaved appallingly. They lied about these drugs. They massively understood. They, A, lied about the risks, which are very real. They, B, created enormous commercial incentives for doctors to over-prescribe these drugs. I despise the Sackler family and the companies that did this. I hope they lose their fortunes and die in prison. There's not a moment of apology for these people from me. But to say that they are the sole or primary reason for the opioid crisis is as fatuous as Nancy Reagan blaming the crack epidemic on crack dealers. It, it's way too simplistic a way of thinking about what's going on. Um, you know, there's a this is a difficult thing to say, but and I don't want to be misunderstood. But Marianne Faithful, the great British singer, uh, who went it, weird, annoyingly, she's most famous for having gone out with Mick Jagger, but I think she's much better than Mick Jagger. Um, she has this. She had a heroin addiction in the late '60s. She was homeless. She had heroin addiction, and in her memoir she says something like heroin saved my life because at that point, if it hadn't been the heroin, I would have killed myself. Right. It's a very challenging thing to say. Marianne Faithful is not saying heroin is a good solution to despair. Right. No one thinks that. Um, the truth is these opioids, people are turning to them because they're in profound pain, deep, deep pain. Um, and we've got to understand that pain and deal with that pain, the underlying causes of that pain. Um, and if we just pathologize the behavior, it would be like thinking, I mean, this is this analogy is going too far, but it would be somewhere in the direction of thinking that if someone's got an obsessive-compulsive disorder with turning light switches on and off, the main problem is with the light switch. It's a misunderstanding of the origin of the problem. The origin of the problem is the despair. But what we've done is we tell such a stigmatized story about depression. I've heard so many people do this that we, you know, it's like saying, oh, I got accidentally hooked. It's a socially acceptable story to tell about your addiction. Saying my, I was in a lot of pain. And so I chose to anesthetize my pain with the best thing I can find is not a socially acceptable story, right? Then you're an addict, you brought it on yourself, blah, 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 all the ugly things that people say. We've got to have a much more sophisticated understanding of this problem. Because if you tell the story, and I don't want to be unfair to Sam Canones because there's a bit more complexity in his story than that. But if you tell the story, it's just the evil drug dealers, it's just the pharmaceutical companies, well then the logical solution is, let's shut down what these evil drug companies have done. Well, what happens when we do that? We know what happens. Uh, I interviewed a guy called Dr. Hal Voss, who's a um, a doctor in Oklahoma. What happens if I've got an addiction to Oxycontin because my life is terrible, I'm in profound psychological distress, and then my doctor cuts me off because he figures that it's because I've got an addiction problem, what happens to me? My life doesn't suddenly get better, right? Because the drug was my way of trying to treat the problem. Not a good way, to be sure, but it was my way of trying to treat the problem. Um, Either I just then face my agony without any anesthetics, uh, which is horrendous, or more likely I seek out the only anesthetic I can buy, which is on the street, because street oxy is very expensive, for reasons I can explain if you want. Um, Mostly I'll go and buy street heroin right? Which is significantly more dangerous than OxyContin. Not that there aren't dangers of OxyContin because there are. Um, so a solution that tells people the problem was just the, the pre- provision of these drugs will lead to logically a solution. Well, let's take the drugs away. But there is some argument for being cautious about the initial prescription. I'm in favor of that. These drugs were over, by the way, Almost all drugs are prescribed in the United States, but that's a separate debate. Um, but that oh, that that's not the answer. The answer is Portugal. The answer is Switzerland. The answer is help people, right? Help them to turn their lives around. Just taking away the drug but giving them no help to turn their lives around is going to produce a lot of suicide, a lot of despair, and a lot of heroin, transition to heroin addiction.
0: Yeah, and I think the analogy to kind of compare that to is alcohol obviously alcohol is legal which is was great but the average person listening how many times do you lean on having a drink you had a rough day whatever it is but you can easily access it there's no stigma around it you know you have you blow off steam with your whiskey or whatever it is you do but then you go about your day and the other thing with alcohol is it's almost impossible to kill yourself unless you drown on your own vomit because you pass out before you can consume too much but you know that again is also an underlying mental health thing, and a lot of I think one of the biggest um elephants in the room in first responders is alcoholism because it's accepted you know when we go to funerals we drink when when you know we go to celebrations we drink so it's it's kind of like a you know a crafty um unhealthy coping mechanism because we we've allowed it we've applauded it. But then there are also men and women that behind that seemingly social drinking are people that are really, really hurting. And one of my close friends who um, who is a firefighter here in, in central Florida, the last time I saw him, um, he was absolutely in crisis. He was about to go to a rehab facility for the third time. And he looked me in the eyes and said, James, if this doesn't work, it's over, meaning he was going to take his own life and that wasn't opiates that wasn't any of the illegal street drugs that was alcohol now thank god the mental you know trauma that he had gone through he found the right you know combination of a good tribe within this this uh, facility good counselors that connected with him and now he's over a year sober running you know a a um, crossfit facility for people that are either in addiction or recovering from addiction so it's very well to point our fingers at addicts of illicit drugs, but you also need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, well, do you use alcohol as a coping mechanism? Is that the alcohol or is it because you've seen some horrible things? You went through some things when you're younger. You're going through a divorce. You're overworked, you know, and then and then flip it around to look at the effects of your life on your own mental health. And what do you lean on to cope with that?
1: Totally. But I think what you're saying is totally true and completely great.
0: Johan, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I want to shift to some closing questions. I know it's getting very late there in the UK now. Let's talk about the book. So your the first book on addiction is Chasing the Scream, the more recent one, Lost Connections. Um, tell people where they can find those um, and you know, if you want a little background behind each one as well.
1: Um, yeah, if you go to www.johannhari.com, that's me, com. You can see about both my books. So, Lost Connections is about what's causing our epidemic of depression and anxiety and what we can do about it. And Chasing the Scream is the book we've mostly been talking about, which is about um, addiction and the drug war. Um, and if you, since people have quite a lot of time at the moment, if they're shut at home, um, on the websites for both of those books, you can hear interviews for free with loads of the people we've been talking about. You can take quizzes to see how much you know about addiction, depression and the drug war. Um, and you can see where to get the audiobook, ebook, or physical book. It's um, funny, I, <laughs> I was on a podcast a while back and at the end they said, you know, what's your social media? And I should say anyone who wants to find on social media, you can see where to on that website. But they said, you yeah, know, what's your social? They said, what's your Facebook? And I gave it and they said, what's your Twitter? And I gave it. And they said, what's your Snapchat and TikTok? And I was like. I am a 41-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> only 41-year-old men on TikTok must certainly be pedophiles, right? I'm like, what do you take me for? No, I don't have them. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's where you can find information about all those things.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, that, I think uh, for me, Instagram's the only really one I've had much luck with. I know Twitter, is, is that your main handle for you?
1: Uh, yeah, although I take long breaks because it's such a um, – poison
0: <laughs> yeah well it's funny that's that's the one thing people don't think about with addiction but i think social media is definitely up there with alcohol and opiates
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: right well then um so the last question i have for you because i want to let you go and we found out you know where you, where people can find you what do you do to decompress you're doing a lot of writing obviously you're doing a lot of speaking as well with, with interviews but when you want to blow off steam what's your outlet's
1: you know, I'm very bad at relaxing. I always have been because I grew up in quite a violent and chaotic environment. The way I dealt with that, even from when I was quite a young child, is I, uh, I would read and write all the time or watch television. I love television even now. Um, so I'm quite bad at decompressing. Uh, until COVID-19 happened, I was in a really nice uh, blooming romance that I haven't been able to see him since uh, all this began. Uh, so that helps. Um, I don't have a huge division between the things that I like doing and the things that relax me. Um, I watch lots of movies. I watch lots of television. I read loads of novels. I read loads of books. I, but then those are sort of half work-related anyway. So if people want a tip, I'm watching. I, I'm actually, uh, so thanks for having me relax in the last couple of weeks. I'm watching an absolutely brilliant British TV show that I never, I, for some reason I missed the first time it was... It was on, it's called Ashes to Ashes. Have you ever seen it,
0: James? I haven't, no.
1: Ashes to Ashes, especially I think people in your profession would like it. Ashes to Ashes is really funny, brilliant TV show. So it's about a hostage negotiator in 1998 in Britain who is shot and she wakes up in an 80s cop show, um, where she's a character in an 80s cop show, like a kind of like quiet sexist, 80s cop show like um, and she realizes that this is what her she begins to think this is what her subconscious mind is creating as she's lying there bleeding and she's got to fight within this 80s cop show to stay alive um, and it's really original and just I mean, it's not like profound or anything but it's it's just really a funny pleasurable um, just x ex- i'm sure it's on amazon prime and places like on itunes um, it's ex- and it just for someone like uh, I think you're about the same age as me, aren't you? I'm forty one.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm older. I'm
1: forty six. Ah, well, you're a little good for it. Uh, I'm I'm forty one. So for people who grew up in the eighties, it's a real like nostalgia kick as well. So I really recommend that that TV series. It's absolutely brilliant. And the central act- actress Keely Hawes, who's in the British shows um, The Bodyguard and uh, Line of Duty, she is completely brilliant in that show.
0: Brilliant. Actually, I did watch The Bodyguard. We, we did have access to that over here. That was a good show. It's a shame they cancelled it.
1: She's the politician in in that show. Uh, she's the kind of politician who gets... Oh, I'm about to give a spoiler alert.
0: <laughs> she's um, the one he's so, protecting?
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's the one who the hot guy from Game of Thrones is protecting. Exactly. Um, yeah, she's in that. She's so good in this. She's so good. I love that show.
0: Brilliant. Well, I have to put that on the list then. Thank you. All right, well, I'm going to... I'm going to let you go. I, I, sincerely appreciate you taking the time. When I read the books and then started listening to you on podcasts, um, you know, especially when I realized that we both met Joao, the, the stars align. I'm like, I, this, this information has to get out to people in general, but especially the people on the streets, the firefighters, the medics, the police officers to, to get us to start questioning what we're doing. And I would love to get with you again. There's so much more that we haven't even touched on, but, um, mm-hmm.
1: I would love to say to your listeners as well, I know at the moment it must be quite frustrating in a way to have people say to you uh, at a time when you're not being given the protective equipment that you need and deserve, there must be something I think quite maddening about having people say, you know, we so admire your courage and the bravery of what you're doing because I can imagine my response would be right, thanks for the Thanks for the admiration, but give me the fucking protective equipment, right? But I I just want everyone listening to know, like, it takes a very special kind of person to run towards danger, to risk your body and your life and your health to protect other people. And especially in the middle of this terrible crisis, you know, our governments might be failing you, but ordinary people are cheering you on and are in real, I mean, my mother was a nurse, my sister was a nurse. Ordinary people are in such awe of what you're doing and, and the, the, the bravery of you guys carrying on in, in circumstances like this. So just, I'm just, and I know I speak for almost everyone when I just say I'm really, really grateful for what you're, for what you're doing and thank you.
0: Well, thank you. I think this is a great time for us to, to look at the nation's health. And I think the mental health needs to be in that, that whole, you know, discussion that we're talking about. And the way you make a nation safer, whether it's drug addiction or whether it's a virus that comes around is having resilient men and women. And the more that we support groups like the NHS again and, you know, fund these, these facilities and obviously the first responders, you know and then encourage good nutrition and good fitness and and you know the the counseling environment then the the healthier men and women we're going to have in all the countries of people listening from now and you know hopefully we can bring solutions to the problems and that's absolutely what you're doing so i thank you back again
1: oh well yeah i'm doing like about one millionth of what you guys are doing but thank you so much and i really enjoyed this conversation let's do it again come to vegas